Greetings, everyone. Prophecy is a favorite subject among all of the so-called Christian world. If there is any prophecy that is more interesting than the prophecies that have to do with the church, I don't know what it is, because people would like to look into the Bible to see what would be the state of the church just before the time of the second coming of Christ. And even more electrifying and exciting, if you could find in the Bible where you as a group, as a specific church or denomination are mentioned, where your work is mentioned in great detail, and you could see exactly the nature and the character and the destiny of that church, that would truly be an exciting scripture. I don't want you to raise your hands, but I'm just going to ask rhetorically, how many of you are aware that the Baptist Church believes in church eras and that the letters to the churches of Revelation 2 and 3 imply all of organized Christianity would be in the latter days in a Laodicean spirit or attitude? The Baptists believe that churchianity in general, Christianity with its more than 400 differing denominations and sects and groups and cults of all different types is Christianity or, quote, the church, end quote, at large. And they believe that today the church is Laodicea. Hal Lindsay writes that the church today is Laodicea. Gordon Lindsay, another writer with Baptist background but no relation whatsoever to Hal, says the same thing. Several of the Church of God's Seventh-day organizations say the same thing. A book entitled A True History of the True Church by Duggar and Dodd, A True History of the True Church by the same title by Herman L. Hay, booklets and articles and dozens of sermon tapes by the Radio Church of God, the Worldwide Church of God, and other offshoots from them deal with the idea of church eras. Now, all of this is found in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation and the letters to the churches, beginning with a letter under the angel of the church of Ephesus. Presumably, this means from the inception of the church, because we know in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of the grave will never prevail against it. So from the time of the institution of the church, which would have been on Pentecost, approximately June 16, 31 A.D., until the time of the second coming of Christ, these seven letters to seven churches, according to this theory, spell out for us the character, the nature, the difficulties, the triumphs and successes, the problems to overcome of every phase as it's viewed, or era as it's viewed, of God's church from the apostolic time until the time of the second coming of Christ. Our question today, is that true? Is there such a thing as a church era through which different ages, centuries, decades of God's people on this earth would pass, so that back during the Middle Ages in the days of the Valdensians, the Vaudois, Peter de Bruys, Peter Waldo, who are also claimed, by the way, as some of the founders or the leaders or the people who were of the Baptist 
or the Seventh-day Baptists or the Church of God's Seventh-day because they will cling to certain things they allegedly taught and most of the literature extant on those people is literature written by their enemies against them, not by them themselves. And so they extrapolate from that certain understandings about their church hierarchical structure, about their doctrines, about whether or not they observed the Passover, and they claim them as a part of their church. So almost universally they believe that Peter Waldo and the Vaudois, the Valdensians, the Albigensians were of the Thyatiran era. Do me a favor, if you have a piece of paper there, if I had a blackboard I would do it for you, make nice little dots because you have to have a lot of space like that, just so many dashes, and do it 19 times across a piece of paper, just for the fun of it, 19 little marks, count 19. Now each little mark, separate a little bit so you can really see there are 19 of them, stands for 100 years. That's what we're doing. We're just writing out all of history from the apostles until the second coming of Christ, 1,900 years approximately. It really should be 2,000 years approximately, but we're leading right now with 1,900 years approximately. 19 of them. I could put these marks all across this stage, each one about that long. Each one represents approximately 100 years. Now, it is a given by the Baptists, by Hal Lindsey, Gordon Lindsey, and all the others, and by all the churches of God that I mentioned, that the apostolic era began at Pentecost, and it ended with the death of John. John, who wrote the book called the Apocalypse, or the book of Revelation that means to reveal, the last book in the Bible, was the apostle Jesus loved. He was the apostle to whom Jesus croaked with some of his last strength, Son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son, speaking to John and Mary. Historians know that Mary went to live with John and that perhaps even spent some of her last years in the city of Ephesus, if not eventually on the Isle of Patmos, and there's an elderly woman died. John was caused to write four books of the Bible, wasn't he? The Gospel of John and then the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We'll come back to that a little later on. To John was given the book of Revelation. And it was given to him when he was on the Isle of Patmos in the very evening of his life, the earliest suggested date around 92 A.D., and the latest date perhaps 101, 102 A.D., by some of the so-called scholars. Isn't it strange that God grouped all of his prophets around two impending destructions of the people of Judah and the people of Israel? The house of Israel had a whole grouping of prophets, among them Joel and Ezekiel and so many others that were talking about the impending captivity of Israel. God sent those prophets to their leaders, to their kings, oftentimes in a violent confrontation, where in Jeremiah's case he was thrown into a slime pit for his trouble when he told the king that his daughters were going to become prostitutes and his son were going to become servants of a king and that the king himself would be led to a foreign land, have his eyes put out, and there die, languishing away in a foreign prison. My point is, when is a warning not a warning? You know, when it isn't delivered. When it isn't delivered. It's not a warning, is it? 
If you understand that someone's house is burning over here in Coffee City or Dogwood City, you drive by and see the house warning, uh, I'm sorry, burning, but you come in here and you tell me, by the way, uh, a house is burning over in Dogwood City. What can I do about it? Well, I can go to the nearest telephone maybe and do what you didn't do and call the fire department, but I didn't stop by the house, bang on it real loudly, open up anyone uh, you know, who might have been sleeping, uh, get them awake, get them out of the house, open the door and try to save them, did I? When is a warning not a warning? It's not a warning when it's not delivered to the people it is intended to warn. Isn't it interesting that God sent Jonah, reluctant Jonah, caused him to go through a terrible, agonizing, near death, which is typical of Christ three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and made him, against his own will, go to a pagan city, the capital of ancient Assyria, Nineveh, where there were no God-fearing people. They did not obey God's dietary laws. There was no Levitical priesthood, no Sabbath, no holy days, no tithing, just a rotten, pagan group of licentious murderers and thieves. But God loved those people, and God had mercy on those people. And so God decided his wrath was bubbling up to where it was filling his own nostrils, and he thought, I'm going to have to just obliterate them all the way I did Sodom and Gomorrah, but I'm going to give them a chance. I will send my prophet, Jonah, and I'll have Jonah walk day after day trailing seaweed with his clothes still stinking of fish through that city. In so many days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. The king heard, called a fast, made the animals fast, the children fast, everybody got on their knees. He said, you better pray to God that his wrath be turned away from us, and his wrath was turned away, and God spared the city because he sent them a warning. Now, in your Bible, turn to Revelation, the second chapter, and let us read the second chapter and the message to one church I want to really zero in on, which is the Ephesian church, or the so-called Ephesian era. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience. These were very good qualities. They were a hard-working church. They labored and worked hard. They had the Christian quality of patience. And how you cannot bear them which are evil. They were very sensitized to a lot of the pagan rottenness around that huge city where Diana the Ephesians was the principal goddess and where Asclepios, the so-called god of healing, and many other pagan gods had their temples and tempietos. And you have tried them which say they are apostles. They came in the garb, the manner, the pomp, and the ceremony of apostles. I too am an apostle. Why, I remember when Paul and I, or Peter and I, or the Lord and I talked. And they said to the people in Ephesus that they were apostles. They listened to them with an open mind, and they compared, they talked about it, and they prayed, and they listened more and more carefully. And they found out that some of them were liars, which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. And when they found out they were liars, they told them so. You're no apostle. You're a fraud. You're a liar. Thanks a lot. We don't need you here. Just go on someplace else. We're fine with our local leadership. We'll stick with what we have. Christ is the one who sends this message, by the way, as you see in the latter part of the first chapter. 
So this is Christ's first-person commendation to a church in a very large city in the Anatolian Peninsula of modern-day Turkey that is long since nothing but ruins along an old estuary that long since filled up with marshland and silt and has been struck by many, many earthquakes until, in a matter of fact, the entire city itself no longer exists, but a smaller town nearby in Turkey up on a hill exists which bears a similar name but is not ancient Ephesus. And has borne and has patience, twice he mentions that, and for my namesake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove your candlestick out of his place. That's a very dire warning. That means the very institution of the church. That meant the church itself, its base its foundation, its structure, the light that it gave off. The whole thing was just going to be taken away. You may as well say, you will lose out on the kingdom of God. You will lose out on salvation. You will not go into my kingdom, except you repent. Serious stuff. To say they had problems, even though they had these other wonderful qualities, but they'd slipped into a problem of just waning love. They'd lost that first love, which included zeal and ebullience, enthusiasm, enthusiasm, and being up and excited about everything that was in the offing for them spiritually. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He didn't say he hated the people, he said he hated their deeds. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, plural, to him it overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Does this mean that this letter applies to the Ephesian era? Leaving that answer for a moment, there are many hundreds of thousands who believe that the letter we will discover a little later on, the sixth of the seven letters, applies today to the Worldwide Church of God. When this organization was first formed, there were large numbers, thousands of them and their leadership, that said very confidently, ah, that is the beginning of the Laodicean Church. Now, others have since gone out from that organization and have written, since they see that that is a wealthy church, and one of its leaders said, we are a wealthy church, on 60 Minutes some years ago that the church that best fits the description of being, quote, rich and increased with goods is the worldwide church, but where some of the little churches that have spun off and have come out of that organization fit the description of being weak and having but little strength, they are now the Philadelphian church. As a matter of fact, I understand one gentleman in somewhere in the Midwest of the United States actually incorporated as the Philadelphian church of God. Now today, from the Philippines to South Africa, and from England to Australia, and from Florida to Canada, people are deciding into which niche you here and I, others whom I will not name that have spun off and formed organizations of them, their own, or the worldwide church and or other churches belong. And there's a great deal of discussion 
and a great deal of talking and writing and researching and looking back into the Bible to decide, well, who is Philadelphia and who is Laodicea? Now, looking at your chart again, 19 100-year dashes across a piece of paper. The first one represents 100 years approximately from Pentecost until the close of the first century, slightly shorter than 100 years, but approximately 100 years. By the death of John and the work of the disciple of John, whose name is Polycarp, who is mentioned and quoted in the Anti-Nicene Fathers, so-called, all of them believe, of course, a new era had begun to dawn in the church, and of course many people understand the dark century, the second, chapter, the second century of history, in which there is also uh, little and very little information about the church, and it doesn't really begin to emerge in history about the uh, Council of Nicaea and Laodicea in 325 and 331 A.D. So by and large, all of these people I talked about, the Baptist, Hal Lindsey, Gordon Lindsey, the Worldwide Church, and everybody else, believes the Ephesian era came to a close with the death of John. So the one little dash over here on your paper that represents one 100-year period out of 19 represents one church era. Now you just progress through interminable numbers of hundreds of years until you come to the very last one. Within the last 100 years, you will find Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, according to all these various churches I'm talking about. I shouldn't say all of them. The Baptists and Hal Lindsey do not say that Sardis and Philadelphia are necessarily contemporary with Laodicea. Only one church says that, and that is the worldwide church. So at the very beginning of your chart, you have a 100-year span for the entire apostolic era. And at the very end of your chart, you have one 100-year span for three out of the seven churches. That's four out of seven, taking up only 200 years. Now, you're only left with Pergamos, Smyrna, and Thyatira. So just whatever you'd like, however many hundreds of years you'd like, one to fit, six, seven hundred years to another one, two or three hundred years, just doesn't matter. Just draw a line there, satisfy yourself, because accordingly, According to the membership, leadership of some of these churches, that's the way God—that's uh, the way God does things in history. Why Thyatira just dragged on 497 years. But you know, it's interesting that not one shred, one scrap, one breath, or one whisper of information is obtainable in history that tells us that anyone from the death of John until basically the beginning of the American evangelical movement of the days of Billy Sunday and thereafter, anybody said, we are the Thyatiran church, or we are the Pergamos church, or we're the Smyrna church, or we're the Sardis church. Because when it comes time to pick and choose, there's only one you'd really want to be. You can't be Ephesus, having lost your first love but said we got it back. Because you know that's in the past if you got the era theory, so you can't claim to be the first one. You've got to be at least one of the last three. Now you don't want to be Sardis because it says they're dead. And you sure don't want to be Laodicea because it says they are lukewarm. So the only one you want to be is Philadelphia, 
who is going to be kept from the hour of trial, go to a place of safety, and furthermore is called the church of brotherly love. Because that's the meaning of the name of the city. What is the meaning of the name of the city called Smyrna? Uh, it's a woman's name, I don't know. You've heard of Myrna? This was Smyrna. She's probably a, a Greek lady. I don't know what that name means. I suppose we could look it up. What does Laodicea mean? Well, it's the wife of Antiochus Epiphanes, whose name was Laodice. I have no idea what it meant in Greek. What about Thyatira? Is that somebody who wore a tire on their thigh? What, what is it? Thyatira. What does it mean? The church of heavy thighs. Uh, well, we know that it, we know the leadership preached for years, and, and 100,000 people believe all the way down to the marrow of their bone that the Philadelphian church is the church of brotherly love, don't we? We've been educated to believe that. But when you apply that same criteria to all the churches, it's kind of stupid, isn't it? What does Ephesus mean? Doesn't make sense, does it? It just doesn't make sense. Now, let's look into Ephesus and mark these points down and never forget them. If Ephesus is an era, then it began on the day of Pentecost in 31 AD. If the letter to the church at Ephesus is a warning, why did it not ever get to the people for whom it was intended? It never went to Rome, never went to Corinth, nor Thessalonica, nor Iconium, or Lystra, or Derbe, or Antioch in Pisidia, or Jerusalem, or Alexandria. It never went to Colossae. It never went to any of the other cities addressed to the Apostle Paul, did it? Well, no, it didn't. Furthermore, if it is the Ephesian era, why, since Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and if I left out one, Thyatira, are all contemporaneous, why is not the message to Ephesus repeated as a footnote or an addendum or some kind of a synopsis to all of these churches, because all of them, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, the contemporary first century churches, were in the Ephesian era, weren't they? Well, sure they were. Then why didn't they get the Ephesian letter? But Smyrna got the Smyrna letter. And Smyrna wasn't supposed to happen until after the death of John. And Pergamus got the Pergamus letter, and that wasn't supposed to happen for about four more centuries. What good did it do the people living in that century? And Thyatira got the Thyatiran letter, and that was five or six centuries beyond then. And the people living in Philadelphos or Philadelphia of that day didn't have the faintest idea that Philadelphia wouldn't come along until January 1934. How could they possibly have taken a warning in the city of Philadelphia saying, this means us? when it didn't mean them. They were Ephesian. Are you following me? Sure you are. If they were contemporary, they existed at the same time all the other churches, and that was the Ephesian era. So they all should have got an Ephesian warning. But wait a minute. When did the warning come? Earliest date, any scholar says, for Revelation, 92 AD. Peter was dead. 
Paul was dead. James was dead. Probably all of them were dead because all of the original apostles were about the age of Christ, or in Peter's case especially, a little bit older. Now we're dealing with 92 A.D., and they were born at about 4, 5, 6, 9, 11, 7 B.C. The elder statesman among them all, near death, very late in his life, in his 90s, was John. He got the warning, but he'd already lived over 65 or so years of his life without knowing what the warning was all about. And none of the other people ever got the warning. They lived, in other words, completely through the so-called Ephesian era with never a hint or a whisper they were in it, didn't they? Well, I'm trying to crack a pretty tough nut here because there are tens of thousands of people that have got what I'm talking about so thoroughly ingrained into their minds I could probably repeat this sermon five times and they still wouldn't get it. They'd still keep talking about church eras and who is Philadelphia and who's Laodicea, and they still wouldn't get it. Now, if this is the Ephesian era, then Peter was a leader of the Ephesian era. And so was Paul, and so was James, and so was John, and Thaddeus, and Bartholomew, and Simon the Canaanite, and all the rest of them. So were all the people, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, the ones Timothy and Philemon and Titus who worked with the Apostle Paul. They were all leaders and part of the hierarchy of the church during the apostolic era or the Ephesian era of the church. So if this is God's warning to them from Christ directly, I have something against you. You've left your first love. Remember from whence you are fallen. This was a fallen church. And repent and do the first works, or I'll come and remove your candlestick out of its place. You cannot find a breath of that warning in anything Peter wrote. You can't find a whisper of it in the book of James. You can't find one bit of it in the Gospel of John, but the Gospel of John was not written until well after Matthew and 1 Thessalonians, both of whom vie for being the very first church literature to be inculcated into the New Testament canon in about 55 A.D. When church literature began to be written, Luke writes the book of Acts probably about 59 to 61 A.D., approximately 28 to 30 years after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. John did not sit there, write the, write the gospel while it was all happening. He wrote it much later in life, and it became recognized as the gospel account that John put down to write the things that many other people had left out to accompany Luke and Mark as the gospels. So, in short, all the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation is, quote, Ephesian-era literature if there was an Ephesian era. Isn't it? Yes, it is. But the only place in all that literature where there is any warning at all concerning this deplorable situation into which they were slipping is found in one little verse that never was quoted out of Christ's holy lips until 92 A.D. You still think there was an Ephesian era? You still think there were church eras? Let's look into Ephesus, because after all, there is no book to Smyrna. We cannot find the epistle of Paul to Thyatira, can we? We cannot find the epistle of Peter to Pergamos. 
None of the other churches are addressed except Ephesus. Now here, if we're going to find, and I'll turn back to the book of Ephesus, or Ephesians, in other words, if we're going to find a warning to this Gentile church, which was largely raised up by the Apostle Paul who dwelt there probably much longer than John, who may have spent a year or two or three in his later life, uh, life there, but Paul was there at least three years on one occasion and linked the occasions on other trips and apparently on one occasion was even thrown into the arena there and really created quite a stir in that city and raised up this church by the efforts that God blessed when the Apostle Paul was preaching, first of all, to a small synagogue of Jews, and later on when massive numbers of Gentiles were converted, who were basically Greeks and other people from the Roman Empire in that city of Ephesus. Here is one of the most congratulatory, one of the softest and the easiest of all of Paul's letters. When you contrast the beautiful language of his first chapter, the introduction, with 1 Corinthians and what he says to the Corinthians about them being babes in Christ and about them getting drunk at the Passover and harboring incestuous relationships in the church and talking about coming with a rod and rebuking that church in Corinth, he has very gentle psychology to write to the church of Ephesus the so-called Ephesian-era headquarters. If there was any church, you've got to agree with me, throughout the entire Roman world, which should have epitomized the so-called Ephesian-era, it had to be the very one after which the name, from which the name came, right? So the city of Ephesus has to epitomize the Ephesian-era. Paul was its leader, not John. And this was written probably about the mid-50s or the latter 50s A.D. So still a sufficient amount of time for a warning because these people, many of them had only been in God's church maybe six, eight, ten years or less. So certainly there was chance for a warning if they had already slipped into that perilous fall, had fallen from their first love and were about to have their candlestick yanked out of its place. But Paul says after his salutation, in verse 2, grace, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He doesn't say they've lost their first love. Having predetermined us, predestinated us under the adoption of children, actually it means sonship, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, the beloved body of Christ, whom Christ loves, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. You can read the entire chapter. What is the theme of Ephesians? To refresh your memory, look at the second chapter. And he talks about grace. And then in 12, verse 12, chapter 2, At that time you were without Christ, because they were Gentiles, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Verse 19, the same theme. Now, therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints in a household of God, 
and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In the third chapter, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. You are as good as the Jews. Your calling is as sure as theirs. Yes, they're God's chosen, but they're no better than you. God has called you. You're his people. He loves you. You can search this book if you'd like. And you recall that in the fifth chapter you see family relations. In the fourth chapter you see these beautiful qualities of Christianity, of the new man, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, putting away lying, speaking truth, being angry and sinning not, neither give place to the devil. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Be you kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, as dear children. Walk in love, chapter 5, verse 2. And then about husbands and wives and servants and masters, and then finally children in chapter 6, and then the whole armor of God that I mentioned has become the scripture from which we take our corporate seal. Search the book of Ephesians and tell me if you believe God Almighty in heaven above had decided that the apostolic era from Pentecost to the death of John was the Ephesian era. And God is just, and God is love, and he's honest, and he's fair. And he would send Jonah to Nineveh, and Joel to Israel, and Isaiah to Judah, and scores of other prophets right to the king. He would send Moses and Aaron direct to the Pharaoh. But never did he allow a single leader of the so-called Ephesian era to even understand they were in the Ephesian era. Nor did he ever allow a single leader of the Ephesian era to warn others they were in that era or to take them a warning that they had lost their first love and were in deadly jeopardy of having their candlestick, their institution, their local church, their very being as a Christian just simply canceled out and removed out of its place. Back in those years, the 50s and the 60s, when that doctrine was being propounded, None of these thoughts seemed to come to any mind. It just went right over their heads. It was thundered from the pulpit, and people simply accepted it. And so they came to the place where they were looking around to try to find either within their own ranks that 50% who were unqualified, lukewarm, and who deserved richly to be martyred in the persecution coming known as the Great Tribulation, because it became to be believed that the way God expiates sin is through human torture. That was the doctrine. It was not denied that the Laodicean people would eventually achieve eternal life. It was just that when these dramatic sermons, like one I remember Mr. A.J. Portune preached in the Feast of Tabernacles out in Squaw Valley about his dream of the night before. Electrifying, exciting, incredible sermon, fearful, frightening sermon. He was there, and he was on the ground as he saw the congregation going up, and he saw their feet, and finally the soles of their feet, and he's looking up at all these feet going up, and he's trying to fly, and he's anchored, and he can't go up, and they're being taken to a place of safety, and he's standing there, and all of us trembled in fear. What happened to us? There goes Philadelphia. Ah! They found out I'm Laodicea. 
Anybody here know what I'm talking about? How many here know what I'm talking about? Oh, there are a lot more than that. You're just reluctant to put your hands up. I remember seeing some of your faces, and in some cases, probably right there at Squaw Valley in that very arena when that sermon was preached, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. A fearsome thing to be finally identified as Laodicea. Does God expiate sin through human torture? Well, why did Christ suffer? Let's just go directly to the heart of the matter, because many of God's beloved apostles, men that he loved with all of his heart, were allowed to die a terrible death. We don't know whether Paul was thrown to the lions, but it's logical and fairly likely that he was. A horrible death. Tradition says Peter was crucified hanging upside down, and probably took many, many hours of pain-wracked agony to slowly die. We know that it tells us in the first few chapters of Acts that James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, not James Christ's brother or James Alphaeus or the little or the lesser James, but James, the brother of John, was beheaded, and that the leadership, the Jewish leadership of that day had carried that out as a persecution, a horrible death, like the guillotine, except they did it with a big sword, probably kind of messy and kind of painful and kind of horrible. Were these people the most guilty? Was Stephen the most guilty when they were stoning to death? Were there hidden sins, secret sins? Was Stephen living a double life? How many sermons have I heard? And I remember so well one man that really did like to zero in on that kind of a sermon. And he had a two-hour Bible class with a lot of youngsters, 17, 18, 19 in there. And he just kept on haranguing about that double life and these secret sins one day. And immediately after class, one young boy who'd come from the Midwest somewhere walked straight out of the classroom and about six blocks right out on the middle of that bridge and climbed up and jumped off. And I got a telephone call that day that an Ambassador College student had committed suicide because he had been made to feel so wretchedly guilty. When you preach a sermon like that and you say you're guilty, 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 you can actually drive people to suicide. You can drive people to such despair they will destroy themselves. How many sermons have I heard that made me walk out saying to myself, guilty, guilty, guilty. I'll never make it. I can never be as good as that man. I can never qualify like that man up there preaching to me. How many sermons have I heard like that? Too many to count. Too many to count. Are there such things as church eras? My answer to you is absolutely not. It says over and over again, and I'm writing a very lengthy and very detailed article to follow along with the article in the current number of the International News, which will become a part of a chapter of a fairly large book on the book of Revelation. I'm choosing to do it in a series of articles to save me time and also to give me the impetus and to be under the gun from the standpoint of looking at deadlines to force myself to sit there and really write it. I worked quite a good while this morning, two or three hours, on the very same subject that I'm talking to you about today. So the next issue, the one on this that I'm talking about and a good deal more beside, will, God willing, be in the international news. You will see in it, and we could read it right quickly now, but for brevity I don't want to do that, 
the similarity of what Christ says to all of the churches. In each case, to him that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And in each case, to him that overcometh will I grant. And then he grants something. In one case, to eat of the hidden manna. In a completely different case, to eat of the tree of life. In a different case, to have a new name that no man knoweth, save he to whom it is given. In another case, to have a little white stone, and to have a name of the new Jerusalem, and the name of God, and the name of the individual all written upon him. In another case, to be a pillar in the temple. You recognize that. That's Philadelphia. In another case, to have rulership over all the nations, but I bet you forgot that's Thyatira, not Philadelphia. So here's one standing there as a pillar in the temple, while one goes by holding a little white stone. You don't know my name. While another is sitting in a corner eating hidden, hidden manna, while still another is over there partaking of the fruit dropping from the tree of life. Is that what we're supposed to understand? Of course not. It is metaphor. Each one of those promises is promising the same thing in metaphorical, poetic language, promising salvation, promising God's family, God's kingdom, co-rulership with Christ for a thousand years and living on out into eternity forever. Each one is promising the same thing, the hidden manna the tree of life, the new stone on which your name and Christ's name and the name of the city of God, which is New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, which is in the scriptures right here of Revelation 2 and 3, all promising the same thing. The rod of iron with which you should rule nations, the same thing. It's all the same promise from the same Christ for the same accomplishment. What kind of accomplishment is it? What kind of accomplishment is it that Jesus Christ promises. Most of us tend to imagine the challenge given to us to overcome as sort of swimming out of a slime pit of sin, of fighting and struggling to overcome horrible appetites, our human nature, the times and circumstances in which we let down and compromise our values and our standards. Sin, in other words, overcome sin. That's the way we look at it, and we are wrong. Furthermore, we tend to be so burdened that we think we've got to do it on our own strength, and we tend to forget that we cannot do it on our own strength. But let's turn to third chapter of Revelation and read what he says to the Laodicean church, the one that is actually, even though they don't know it, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now he warns and counsels them to buy of him gold tried in the fire, that's righteousness through tribulation, that you may be rich and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and let us hope and pray that those who receive that warning do precisely that, that the shame of your nakedness does not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that, is, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Then he loves the Laodicean church. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Does that mean they can do that? When God says repent, is it possible you can do it? Why, sure. He even opens a door, a so-called window of opportunity. He grants repentance. He draws you to repentance. He allows you to repent. He gives you the opportunity, and he gives you the spiritual capacity to repent. 
He says, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will grant, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. Did Christ have to struggle upward out of some swimming slime pit filled with sin? Absolutely not. He never sinned. So what did he overcome? Human nature, temptation, the fleeting little desire to give in to sin, but never sin. He overcame. He overcame by the power of God's Holy Spirit, which was poured out into the mind of Christ without measure from the womb. But he had to continually go to resupply that flowing power that was God's Holy Spirit. And he had to pray long and hard. He said on one occasion when the disciples tried to cast out a demon, this kind cometh not out but by fasting and prayer. He fasted and prayed. He stayed close to God. The way he overcame was not trying to attack the immediate physical problem and struggle with it. The way he overcame was on his knees, praying to God, calling out for more of God's power, keeping at it and at it and at it, depleting his own physical energy by going without food a day or two, or in the first case when he met Satan himself, 40 days and 40 nights at one time in order to be so close to God and so far away from the physical appetites of this physical, chemical, temporal existence that he was really on God's wavelength and was in tune with God's mind so that he could be walking along and just say, Thank you, Father, that you heard, almost as if in conversation with God on a casual basis. It says here in your Bible, Even as I also overcame. So let's not start thinking that overcoming is too difficult for us or that we have to overcome on our own strength because Christ overcame not sin, but the temptation to sin. And we can do the same. Who are the two witnesses? Let's turn now in Revelation to the 11th chapter. For literally decades I heard it preached that the time is coming, and by the way, this is true, because the Bible does show that this is so. And this prophecy here seems to imply that it is so. That the time for organized preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God via television, radio, the printed page, personal evangelism, and holding local church services is going to come to an end. And certainly when we read in Christ's warnings in the 10th chapter of Matthew, Matthew 24, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, because of betrayals, because of a breakup in government and a complete disintegration of civilization and society, orderly society as we know it, and eventually the great tribulation to fall upon our beloved United States of America, then the time for buying television time and maintaining a mailing list and mailing out literature and tapes and receiving people's letters in return and sitting here peacefully in a meeting like this or going to travel across several states in our automobile and buying the fuel to do so and staying in motels and buying food and enjoying the Feast of Tabernacles will have come to a close. So that part of what I heard for years, that the time is going to come when there will be a, quote, famine of the word. You're familiar with that prophecy. Where no organized preaching of the gospel will be allowed. That's true as far as it goes. 
But the bad part of that preaching that I heard was that all of God's church, I mean trained, skilled, qualified, professional preachers and ministers, trained writers and technicians of every kind, tens of thousands of solid, God-fearing, church-going people in whom is God's Holy Spirit, are away in caves, hiding out in Petra, while the world goes up in flames. And that is the time when the Philadelphian era is taken to a place of safety, right? That's what we've heard for decades. Who is left behind? Laodicea. And who are they? Yuck. Lukewarm. Ugh. I've heard it described by the public. Did you ever get a hold of a cup of coffee you thought was hot and it was just tepid? Ugh. It says right here in the Bible, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And I saw that demonstrated out of the pulpit, the spewing out of the mouth. Being left behind, going into persecution, entering into the great tribulation. That's where you buy the gold of him tried in the fire. The fire is the great tribulation. The fire is being dismembered. It's having your fingernails pulled out. It's torture, mind-boggling torture. And through all of this, you become righteous. Not most people. They'd say, don't, don't hit me anymore. I'll say anything you want me to. Not most people. They would curse God, as Paul himself said he forced people to do, and then die. What a doctrine. What a doctrine. Now, here are these two people. It says in verse 3, I will give power unto my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. I don't care what bug-eyed, insane, dingling says, this means the Old and the New Testament. That's an idiotic idea. The Old and the New Testament are not clothed in sackcloth. And they've existed for far more than a mere thousand, two hundred, and threescore days. These are two human beings not three, and not one, and no one needs speculate about who they are. It says, symbolically, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks that are mentioned in another prophecy back in Zechariah, standing before the God of the earth, and if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth, and I'm sure that's metaphorical, and devour their enemies. That means their word by which there are droughts, famines, and other terrible things that happen. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. When are they active? After the beginning of the great tribulation, the heavenly signs, and here are the plagues of God coming out during the very time of the day of the Lord when all organized preaching of the gospel is over. Therefore, to which era do they belong? They are not in a place of safety. Oh, no, we will see they're very much out there in jeopardy of their lives, which they lose in terrifying fashion. Why? Because of hidden sins, living a double life, something there that we uh, suspect but don't really know. That's what's wrong with them. That's why they're going to be killed. It says... These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues 
as often as they will. These are far more powerful men then, gifted with far greater spiritual gifts and powers than were Moses and Aaron, who were able through God's power and God's miracles to break the back of the greatest nation up until that time. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies, probably maimed, maybe horribly burnt, maybe garroted, strangled, shot, hanged, I don't know, shall lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. I've shocked people before by asking them, look up in the Bible what the spiritual name of Jerusalem is for today. They call it the holy city. There's nothing holy about Jerusalem today. It's very unholy. Spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and a nation shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves, just lie there, and they that dwell upon them, and probably maybe satellite television, will send that picture to everybody, shall rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets, says they're two prophets, human beings, subject to death, tormented them that dwell upon the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying, come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and perhaps at the very same time that within hours or minutes or whatever, the second coming of Christ, although that is not defined here. And then comes the great earthquake. So it may have been within a few days just prior to the second coming of Christ that these are resurrected in the same way that God resurrected those at the death of Christ when the veil in the temple was rent in twain. And some who had recently died walked back in were received of their own beloved family members in shock because they had died and been buried. So God resurrects these two prophets at that time. By that old doctrine to which I refer, these would have been a couple of typical Laodiceans. Now, isn't that a silly doctrine? What does it do? Well, I think we know. First of all, it presupposes predestination. You had no choice. If you were a Vaudois in Nancy in France in 1264, and you grew up in a family that observed God's Sabbath day, you were a Thyatiran. And you were afflicted by that woman called Jezebel. You might not have known it. There might not have been a pastor that ever stood in your pulpit and said, here's the part of the Bible that means us. And there is not one breath in history that indicates there was ever a time until the 1950s and 60s A.D. in the United States of America that somebody began preaching that kind of a doctrine. There is no evidence in history. But remember our graph? Isn't it silly? that 1,800 years goes by, and then all of a sudden here come three of the final church eras contemporaneous with each other when it took all those 1,800 years for the first four, and actually only three because only 100 years was taken up with the Ephesian era. Well, remember all that you learned about the so-called Ephesian era because the entire New Testament is supposedly Ephesian era literature. Paul, who wrote 14 books of the Bible, said nothing to a one of the churches in his care about losing their first love. Peter, who wrote two books of the Bible, said nothing about the churches under his care 
losing their first love. Now, finally, let's turn to the letters John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, the final remaining apostle who was alive to receive God's warning, if that's what it was, to that era, if that's what it was, which it wasn't. At 92 A.D., after 90-some percent of them were dead, and whatever mistakes they'd made had been made, and they went to their graves in blissful ignorance of their lost first love, and never had a chance to regain it because nobody ever told them they'd lost it. Dumb, isn't it? To imagine such a thing, that God would work that way. In 1 John, he begins to write continually about love. You can look at the theme of love throughout all of John. In, in verse 10, for example, of the second chapter, He that loveth his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. He talks about not loving the world, but loving instead God's way. In the third chapter, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Now, it has been pointed out before, I think all of you know, that the three graces of faith, hope, and charity, listed in that way, girls are often named by those graces, faith, hope, and charity. Faith, hope, and love, in other words, because it is charitable love is what is implied. And that God so arranged the writers of the so-called general epistles, James, Peter, and John, James writes one, Peter writes two, John writes three. James writes about what? Faith. It's the main theme of the book of James. And we find in it that faith chapter, don't we? Faith and hope. You can take the word hope and look through first and second Peter and you'll find it repeated time and again. How he's begotten us unto a lively hope of the resurrection. And I preached whole sermons on these facts. That faith, hope, and charitable love are the themes of James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Love is John's theme. John says in a close, I'll, I'll turn to that quickly because I just want to take that one brief moment in the Gospel of John to go back to the 20th chapter. And it says, This spake he, verse 19, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrays thee? And then was the saying that John would never die, and of course he did outlive the rest of the apostles. So he was the one leaning on Christ's bosom whom Jesus loved. Was John the apostle to preside over a church which had lost its first love? Well, then he was responsible for it. As is the leader, so is the church. As goes the apostle, so goes the church. That message was not to little lay members. That message to the angel of the church is to the messenger of the church. And I can prove to you it is a human messenger. And the word angel is an error in, in Revelation 2 and 3. It is translated, transliterated, messenger. And the messenger of that church is the leader of that church. And it was addressed to that man, the leader of that church, who is at all times responsible for the way that church is going. Was John then not responsible for the church under his care? It says over and over again, 
Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, we should be called the sons of God. Beloved, verse 2, now we are the sons of God. In verse 10, In this the children of God are made manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Verse 11, This is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Over and over again, what does he say? He says in verse 7 of chapter 4, This is the love of God. 5.3, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Verse 10 of chapter 4, here is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. It just all through the writings of John, love, love, love. No loss of first love here, but the most beautiful books in all the Bible about love from the apostle Jesus loved who was caused to write about love. No, brethren, there are no eras, and we are neither Philadelphia nor Smyrna, nor Pergamos, nor Thyatira, and certainly not Laodicea. Laodicea was Laodicea, but it didn't live in an era. It just lived in a time called the first century. And Ephesus was Ephesus, and it wasn't in the Ephesian era. There was no such thing. It just lived in the first century. And when Christ says very clearly, let each one hear what the Spirit says to the churches it means this is a message portraying the specific difficulties and the general difficulties as a whole that confronted all of God's people in that Asian area at that time, and is a message to all the church everywhere all the time. Revelation 2 and 3 is a message to all the church everywhere all the time. So let's no more engage in Labeling, we are not Philadelphia, and we're not worried about who might be Laodicea. All of those people died long ago. We're the Church of God International, a part of the spiritual body of Jesus Christ. We do not depend upon a piece of paper in a metal file drawer in Austin, Texas, that says we were incorporated sometime in July in 1978. We depend upon what is going on between you and Jesus Christ and God the Father in heaven above, and whether or not your, holy, your own mind possesses God's Holy Spirit, whether or not you are a new creature in Christ and you're tied directly to Christ and through Him to God the Father. And if so, then if there are others who do not even recognize that we are their brethren and we can give them the benefit of the doubt and hope and believe that they also are tied to Jesus Christ, but are perhaps deceived by their leaders, we can say it is to their loss. But let us love them, have patience and tolerance toward them, and no longer engage in labeling, pointing a finger, placing blame, or calling different church groups by different names of so-called eras, which never existed in the first place.